We are starting a new series today that will take us through the end of the year called No Peace. We are living in a time where it's not very peaceful, right? And, and it hasn't been for a while. And, and it's, it's kind of a worldwide thing. As oftentimes we tend to view our history through just American lenses, which that can lead us into bad directions because then we think whatever is just happening in America is worldwide, and that's not always the case. But we know that all the different cultures of the world, that there's a lot of upheaval in all of them or in many of them, and there's, the world is just becoming a less and less of a peaceful place. And especially with the pandemic, everybody has been super stressed, and we've been very stressed here in America. And now here we are, we're going to be moving towards Advent, moving towards the Christmas season. And so we're going to talk about peace, and we're going to talk about peace right through the, to the end of the year, and look at, at what it means, what does it mean for us to have it. And again, we oftentimes have a picture of this that is more formed by just our, by our cultural ideas than by what the Bible actually says. So we're going to dive into what does the Bible actually say, what is the biblical definition and the biblical description of peace. And so we're going to start in Zechariah. Now, I grew up in a little rural church here in Maine, a little Baptist church, and studied the whole Word of God, was taught the whole Word of God, but there was a lot that I didn't quite, I guess it didn't, like it, I didn't see how it related in the same way, especially the Old Testament stuff. Sometimes it seems a little more obscure, seems to not really apply to our day-to-day lives today. You know, if you're looking for something that really gets your day going, you're more apt to turn to some, you know, the words of Jesus or, or maybe a good verse in Philippians than to, hey, let's wander into the minor prophets because you sit there and go, okay, well, this is a little more dense and doesn't seem to relate. But we're going to look in Zechariah today of the promise of peace, of the peace that was promised and what happened with that. So let's just contextualize Zechariah first so we understand what we're reading here. So Israel, of course, had been a country. They'd been one country, and then they split. They had a civil war. They broke into two countries, Israel and Judah. And then first Israel and then Judah were carried away and conquered and ceased to be countries. And Babylon came along and, and swept away and led captives away and tore down the city. So the city walls were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And everything's just wreckage. And all the a lot of the people have been hauled away to be slaves in Babylon. And, of course, when it first happened, the false prophets who had first promised Israel, don't worry, nothing bad will happen to you because you're God's people. And that wasn't true. And then when they got hauled away, the same prophet said, oh, this is just temporary because we're God's people and he's going to bring you right back. But God, through Jeremiah, had said, that's not true. You're going to be there for a while. You might as well get married, buy a house, settle down and plant a garden you're going to be there for a while. You're going to be there for 70 years. So now, things are changing. Why? Because the 70 years are drawing to a close. And the people who are studying the Word of God are realizing, whoa, I think we're near the end. And we see this happen in Nehemiah and in Ezra, where they become aware of, oh, time's up. It's time where we can go back to the land. So Zechariah is during this time. And in Zechariah chapter 7, a question is asked, because the time for restoration is approaching, uh, already people are being allowed back into Israel, they're beginning to rebuild, 
Ezra and Nehemiah are both starting their work of rebuilding the homeland and rebuilding Jerusalem. And so in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1, then it came about in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the town of Bethel had sent, so this is a town in Israel, had sent Sherezer and Regamelech. Nobody chooses those for baby names. You ever notice? And their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, here's the question, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? So the question is, do we fast or not now that the temple is being rebuilt? Because they were commemorating the destruction of the temple every year with a fast, a Let's mourn this. So for 70 years, approximately, every year they have this fast to remember their loss. So now, we've been doing this a long time, now, hey, they're rebuilding the temple. What does God want us to do? Should we continue to have this mourning ceremony, or is it time to be done with this? Now the temple's being rebuilt. So the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8 are the answer to the question. And we're going to look at the second half of the answer in chapter 8 today. So that's the context in which chapter 8 is. And it is an offer of peace in chapter 8. So let's look. So look with me at chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. The first thing he says, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. So the first statement is how we got here. Why has God been angry? And he says, I've been angry because I'm jealous. Now, jealousy for us is usually a negative word. We do not use the word jealous usually in positive ways. It's just not part of our cultural. Jealousy always has a negative connotation. But here it's not because the reason jealousy is a negative connotation for us is because it usually means an unhealthy desire to possess. It usually means that it's an unhealthy desire to possess. But here, God's jealousy is a healthy desire to possess, okay? God wants to have us be a people of His possession because He loves us and He's infinite good. So Jesus, God does not have an unhealthy desire to possess us. And He goes, because we are supposed to have this relationship where you're mine and I'm yours, I'm jealous for you. And when they had violated that, there's where His anger came from. It came from a violation of the relationship. Verse 3, thus says the Lord... I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. So he says, and now I'm going to bring you back and establish you in a promise of peace. So then in verses 4 through 8, he describes this peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and he makes this beautiful picture of what peace looks like. Let's just look a little bit of it. Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. So he pictures just kind of domestic bliss. He pictures a city at peace where the old people just sit back. You know, with us it would be them sitting on the porch in their rocking chairs while the kids play in the yard. 
But because it's a city, he pictures them sitting on outside the houses and the kids are playing in the streets. And it's a picture of safety because the most vulnerable of the society, the old and the young, can just relax. And the old can sit there and the kids can play. And it's a picture of a society at peace. And he goes, that's what we're shooting for here. And then in verse 6, he gives a nod to why this is a weird thing to say. Because remember... If you know your Nehemiah, if you don't, you can go and read Nehemiah, that when Nehemiah asked, what are things like back home? They said, well, the gates of the city are broken down, the walls are broken down, and everybody's scared and scattered. Things were bad. And so this picture of everybody just sitting around Jerusalem in, in peace and safety and the kids playing, he says, God says, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days... Will it also be too difficult in my sight? In other words, he realizes that when he paints this picture of people going, like that can happen. Like that picture of domestic bliss is possible. We, Jerusalem's a wreck. It's a city that's been destroyed. And you're talking about everybody sitting around, the kids playing on the streets. The streets aren't safe for kids. And he says, well, I realize it seems difficult to you, but is it too difficult for me? Is it impossible for me? Just because you think it's too hard? And apparently I never silenced my phone. You should always silence your phone. I love it when it's someone from church. <laughs> verse 8. Well, verse 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. In other words, where they've been sent. And will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And so he's going to, it seems impossible, but he is going to restore them back into this relationship where you'll be mine and I'll be yours. This is a call back to verse 2 when he said, we had this rift because you cheated on me. You were no longer mine and I'm jealous for you and now we're going to get that relationship back. It's this beautiful picture of, again, him wanting to be with them. So then in verses 9 through 15, he talks about kind of both how we got there and an offer. So let's look. Verse 9 and 10. Verse 9, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets. Those who spoke in that in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. He says, now listen to the words. We're going to cover this again. It's a review. Because remember the first time they built the temple? And if you were here, we talked about that when we, the, the week we did the in the house. The name of the message was in the house. And we looked at Solomon's dedication in the temple and talked about how the temple was going to be the center of worship for God's people to reach the nations. And that all the nations would come and worship in this house. And basically what he says is, now I want you to listen to those words because the first time they were spoken, people, it didn't work. Verse 10. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for animal, and him who went out or came in there was no peace because, his enemies, because of his enemies. And I set men one against another. In other words, they didn't do it, and because of that the whole thing fell apart. And you didn't have peace. Verse 11, But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. He's looking to change things. 
For there will be peace, for the seed and the vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the heavens will give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. He says, so now I want to bless you. He's coming back to, this is how I want to do it the first time. You guys rejected it. Let's do it now. And he starts promising peace, and here are some pieces of the peace. Pieces of the peace? Pieces of peace. This is just going to trip us up. Agricultural peace. That's what it, just all it means. Peace for the seed and the vine and the fruit. In other words, you'll be able to now, because again, they'd been wiped out. And when these raiders came in, one of the first things they attacked was agriculture. Back and look at judges when they would attack the agriculture. Verse 13, it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you that you may become a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. He says, and I'm going to give you political peace. We're going to go back to the fact that you're supposed to be a blessing. You've, been, you've become a curse. But let's, we're going to get back to you will be a blessing, and you're not going to have to be afraid of your neighbors anymore because I'm bringing you back and establishing you. So you'll have agricultural peace, you'll have political peace. Why, why didn't they have it? Verse 14, for thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purpose to do harm to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, said the Lord of hosts, I have, and I have not relented. He says, your fathers blew it, and we're still not done with that. I have not relented doesn't mean, well, now the reason things are changing is because I've changed my mind. Why is there a difference? So I have again purposed in these days to do to Jerusalem to good to do good to Jerusalem and the house of Judah do not fear in other words even though what your fathers did we're not done with that but I want to do good to you now I want to do good to you now the idea being you have a new chance this is an offer I have not relented but I have purposed well if it's an offer what do they have to do to accept the offer your fathers blew it, so do this. Verse 16 and 17. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. He says, so it's time for you to do different. Truth, judgment for peace, and don't devise evil. All this in the gates. Now, we need to stop for a second and understand what that means. Because we do not, in our society, we don't have city gates, not the way they did. So we don't, it doesn't translate well for us. In their society, the gates were where government was centered. They didn't have the courthouse in the middle of the city. So like if you had a dispute with your neighbor... You went out to the gates where the town elders would sit. They would sit in the gate. And you would go out and say, and bring your neighbor, and you'd appear before the elders and say, so he built his shack within the setback requirements. And the elders would discuss it and, and yield a result. And that would be your justice. So he says, I want justice and judgment for peace in your gates in your courthouse. Well, that means we also need to understand the word for justice because we have a very Americanized view of justice that doesn't match the biblical 
When we say justice, what we normally mean is the impartial and full application of written law. That's what we mean by justice. We want justice to be done, which means apply the law completely and absolutely and fairly. And that's what we mean by justice. Justice is going to be done. When I was growing up, I'll date myself with this, but there was a song, I didn't listen to country music. I still don't. But we all knew this song because it was just everywhere. You can't outrun the long arm of the law. Oh, you can't outrun the long arm of the law. Which was not about justice, but it was about a girl. But that's another thing because country music. But, but it was this idea of the long arm of the law. And we had the Dukes of Hazard, you know, who, the, the law and being corrupt. We have this idea of law and justice. But the Bible, when our, our concept of justice, it's a, it's, a cool, it's a cool idea. This idea that if you just take your laws and have good laws and then apply them fully and completely, that that will result in justice. That's a beautiful thought. And many of us hold that thought, and we hold it as an American ideal. And the one thing that we tend to forget that the Bible doesn't forget, because God doesn't forget it, because God is much more based in reality, is when we create this picture of perfect justice, you know, and we even have what, Lady Justice, the blind with the scales, it's an ideal. And while there's nothing wrong with ideals, the problem is, is we as humans are incapable of ideals, because we're just not ideal. And the Bible does not speak in ideals because the Bible says, you guys can't do ideals. We tried it. It was called Eden. How'd that work out for you? And so as God describes justice, he does not discuss it in the same way as we do because we discuss it ideally, and then we pretend we have the ideal. But we all know that even in our wonderful American system, which is not a bad system, but it's based on an ideal, but what really happens the people with the most power usually can get the best outcome. Why? Because you can hire 15,000 lawyers and the system is designed to be, it's, it, well, not, maybe not designed to be manipulated, but it is susceptible to manipulation by what? Power. And this has always been the case in any system. Power corrupts the system. Why? Because the system is easily corrupted. Why? Because it's full of people who are all influenced by power. And so the biblical concept of justice is built on taking care of the powerless. And if you look all the way through the Bible, the biblical idea of justice is make sure that you are caring well for the powerless because you don't have to worry about the powerful because the system takes care of them. The system takes care of the powerful because human systems all end up, even if they're not intended to, all lean into the powerful. And every human system, capitalism, socialism, you name it, all the isms, all end up tilting into the powerful. Why? Because that's what we do. That's our human nature. 
And so that's one of the things the Bible talks a lot about. Read all the way through it. Old Testament, New Testament, again and again. What do they keep talking about? The widow and the orphan, the widow and the orphan. Why do they talk about so much about the widow and the orphan? Because the widow and the orphan are the quintessential people without power because a widow and an orphan are the two that have the least power in the system, at least in their system, and probably in ours too, but especially in theirs. Why? Because an orphan, a child, has no power, and a widow... Because the system was set on men being able to have most of the power and most of the rights, and women did not have much for rights. So if you were a widow, you had no one to fight for you. You had nobody to advocate on your behalf. Your society didn't give you power. The system didn't recognize you as an equal partner. And so all the way through the Bible, the Bible says, listen, how, do, how does the Bible measure justice? How are you handling the widow and the orphan? Because biblical justice, Micah 6, 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require you, but to do justice. And it doesn't mean, make sure you apply the law really strictly. He means, are you protecting the powerless? Because the system won't. And if you look through when he begins to say, this is why I'm sending you out into exile, there were two big things. The exile was, one, you did not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, idolatry. And the second one was you abused the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, the person who doesn't belong to your system, the stranger. That was the third area. And God is very clear that why Israel gets kicked out is for the abuse of those three things, because that's to love your neighbor as yourself. And those two commandments rest all the law. So biblical justice is taking care of the powerless, making sure that they are not disadvantaged by a system that tends to respond to power. And he says, so now I want to give you peace. And what do you need to do? Speak truth, quit lying. He brings up perjury in verse 17. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. And do not devise evil in your heart towards one another. Don't be trying to take advantage of each other. Trying to do evil. Don't love perjury. These are things I hate. Now, that's great. The one thing he hasn't done is answer the question. So in 19 through 23, he finally answers the question. What about, should we, so do we fast? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love of truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I will also go. So many people and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. So he says, in response, he says, actually, you just asked about this feast. We're going to include about four others that you guys do. All fasts. I'm sorry, fasts. These fasts that you've had, you have all these different fasts for mourning my punishment. We're going to convert them to feasts. We're going to convert them to feast. And again, he says, so love, truth, and peace. Love, truth, and peace. And then he paints this picture again of everyone encouraging everyone toward God. He goes, now they're going to go from city to city and say, hey, let's go up and worship Yahweh and, and, and enjoy his favor. We'll go too. Let's all go. 
And then he pictures again, like he did at the founding of the temple, the whole achievement of the mission of God. Peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor, that's just grace, of the Lord. So again, he pictures all these nations, which they're used to the nations coming and seizing them and grabbing them away. He says, now they'll come to worship with you. They'll come to receive the blessings of the Lord because there's the picture. You're a blessing to bless the nations. They'll all come to know me. And then a very powerful picture in verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations, so it's picturing a bunch of other foreigners, will grasp the garment of the Jew, mm. saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with and that's a powerful picture because the people of God, they've gotten used to people coming in and seizing them. And he says, now you'll get 10 people from 10 different nations and they'll run up and seize you to say, can we go with you to go worship God? Can you imagine what that thought is for a Jew who's been used to being seized and dragged away, you know, like Daniel and his friends? They will seize you and say, can we go with you to Jerusalem to worship? Such a different picture. This is the peace of God. So when they say, well, should we continue to mourn? He says, actually, I want you to focus on what I want to do for you. And we're going to convert this fasting to feasting. All right, this is just starting up. We're all not going to get very far. And it's going to spread to the world, grasped for good. It's a beautiful picture of what God is offering. So let's unpack this a little and come back and talk about it. The first thing is, so the lack of peace is not a failure of God, but a refusal by us. Why didn't they have this? Not because God was holding it back. So often we feel like, well, you know, God is sitting there kind of stingy, but if you appeal to Him hard enough, maybe He'll finally go, okay, fine, here's some blessing. I guess you tried hard enough, I'll, I'll drop a little blessing on you. No, the idea is that He is eager to bless, He longs to give us peace and blessing. He desires to give us these things, and the reason we don't have it is because we refuse. That's why I wanted to use the picture with the kids of the stuff shows up and you just pile it in the corner. You don't open the packages. He's trying to give you peace. We go, you know, I'm going to do it my own way. I want to do my own thing. And that's really what's wrong. We want to do things our way. We will fight for the right to do things the way we see fit. And God says, that's why you don't have... I'm not failing. You are. There was a preacher I used to listen to a long time ago. He was a comedian. And he talked about he thought he was going to become a pastor. And he had this very culturally intense view of that. And he always talked in King James English. I beheadeth youeth that goeth fortheth. And he says, and then he went out <clears throat> and he failed. He goes, I went home, he goes, and I hit my knees in the hallway and skidded into the bedroom. He goes, and instead of a flowery prayer, my prayer was, God, what are you doing wrong? He said, and the Lord said, not me, it, you it. The reason we don't have this is because not that God has failed, but we have refused. Well, what does accepting look like? Verses 16 and 17. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment for peace in your gates. And let none of you 
devise evil in your heart against one another, and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate. He says we need to be on mission. God's people were supposed to be blessing the nations. They were supposed to be an example of a different kind of kingdom, a different kind of life. And you receive the offer by responding to it. Open the package. He has told you, again, Micah 6, 8, He has told you, man, what is good? What does the Lord require? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. In fact, there's one word we haven't defined yet. By on mission? Huh, missed that every time. Mission, not mission. That's weird. What does peace mean? We oftentimes think peace is the absence of conflict. That's, that's our definition of peace. Peace means I'm not fighting. Sometimes we think peace is an emotional state, that kind of like, oh, you know, kind of zen, oh, of peace. It's an emotion. And so then we strive for an emotional reality, which oftentimes is so, so easy to get, because emotions can come and go. That is not the biblical definition of peace. The biblical word peace means to be complete, wholeness, all together. Here's the best way to picture it in our culture, in our experience. Two of the, two of the things I like to do as far as being a, a, a domestic person when I'm not doing ministry is mowing the lawn and snow blowing. Having to go out and do it, I don't always enjoy. Oh, I got to go mow the lawn. Oh, I got to go. Oh, wow, we got two feet of snow. I got to go clear it. But once you get me on the tractor, I like it. Put on the earbuds, got the audio book or the podcast going. Mowing or blowing, love it. So in the summertime, I do it with a lawn. Wintertime, I'll use the winter's thing because that's where we're heading, much as we hate to think of it. I've still got the mower on the tractor. Got to probably take care of that. So I'll go out, I'll start snow blowing through the driveway, extra driveway out to the compost, up to the door. All right, we're done. Oh, mailbox. Now I'm done. I blow, blow out, enjoy it. I've been out there for an hour. It's not been quiet because the tractor is loud, so I have to have these louder, so I'm going to be deaf. But now it's over, so I back the tractor back into the garage, shut it off, shut off the earphones, take them off, and it's quiet. Both because... All the noise I have going is gone, and it's winter. You know, and the, the snow muffles everything. So I step back outside, and it's silent. And I walk down the driveway and just look. Whew. Oh, it looks good. Freshly snow-blowed, clear driveway. Oh, it's beauty. I just look around, because it's done. I'm done. I'm done. Look at it. Oh, it's done. Sometimes I even go outside and I'll stand at the window again and just admire it. That's peace. The idea of looking and going, oh, it's done. It's complete. Finished. And whenever you've had a big project and you get it done and you step back and you take that minute and you go, it's done. That's peace. And that's what God is offering them. That, and that's that picture of 
The old men are sitting, the old men and women are sitting on the stoops, and the boys, are, the boys and girls are playing in the streets, and it's just like, ah, we're done. It's the way it ought to be. That's peace. Now, what happened here? Because this is an offer that he's making to his people as they are starting to stream back into the land. Why are they streaming back into the land? Well, the 70 years are up. But in God's program, why are they coming back to the land now? Not just because 70 years are back, but because they're going to rebuild the temple and they're going to rebuild Jewish society. They're going to end up, they were under the Babylonian Empire, but the Babylonian Empire is going to fall and they're going to end up under the Roman Empire. But as the Roman Empire, they're going to end up as a people again in the land with temple worship. They're back. Why? Why is God bringing them all back? Because he's getting ready to send the Messiah, who is going to be the Prince of Peace. And he is telling them what can happen, because Messiah is going to come and he's going to close the deal. Spoiler alert, they didn't take the offer. They didn't listen. And when they got back into the land, they just erected the same old system. And when Jesus comes along, who does Jesus go and hang out with? The poor, the needy, and the rejected. And what did the people, the religious system, say to them? Say to him, why are you hanging out with those people? What's one of the things he got in the most trouble for? Healing people on the Sabbath. He's like, what do you think we're here to do? We're here to take care. They're sick. They're crippled. But instead, they oftentimes use the cripples as a prop to try to embarrass Jesus because they were using people to try to perpetuate their power that they felt that Jesus threatened. Which means they're right back to the same old system. And Jesus is like, and so at one point, Jesus walks up. He's walking towards Jerusalem. He comes up over the, the top of one hill, and on the next hill is the city. And he goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, and you are not willing. Another point he said, if only you knew this day the things that would make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your sight. Why have they been hidden? Because he showed them that here and they rejected it. They just went back to the old way of doing things. And when Messiah came, they didn't even recognize him. And the vision of Zechariah 8 didn't happen. It has yet to happen. Now the book of Zechariah goes on and talks about when it's going to happen. But they rejected the Messiah. And what could have happened when he showed up didn't. And of course, God knew that. We're just getting started. We're going to dive into the next two weeks. We're going to spend two more weeks in the Old Testament looking at the prophets and their promise for peace and the promise of Messiah. And what does it mean for the Messiah to bring peace? And how does that relate to us today? For us today, I think the biggest thing as we just start this up is, again, looking at 16 and 17, we need to be on mission. Speak the truth. 
do justice, judge with truth, and judgments for peace. It's a judgment of God, not the judgment of man. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to save it. What's Jesus' approach to people who are guilty? That's us, folks. How did Jesus judge us? By lifting us up when we could not lift ourselves up. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We need to be on mission because that's how we will, in this fallen sinful world, begin to experience the peace of God. And we're going to talk. We've got, we got a lot of verses to go to understand what does the peace of God mean and how do we experience it today. Can't do it all in one service. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are the Prince of Peace. And even as the next couple of weeks we look at the verses that describe you that way and as we begin to understand what does it mean for you as Messiah to bring peace. And as we then go into the New Testament and, and look at what does it mean for us to experience this peace, what does it mean for us to live out the offer of peace that you're giving us this day in a world that does not have peace? As we look at this tension between a world that is bent on fighting and tearing and dominating, and you, the God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who come into this world full of power plays, and you're so different. And Lord, be with us over the next six weeks as we really dive in and hear your voice as you teach us this different way of living that is different than the world's way and better and better for us. And Lord, thank you for your patience as we stumble along and your patience with your people as we see here where they got it wrong, they're going to get it wrong again, they're still getting it wrong, we're still getting it wrong, and yet you correct and restore and promise again because you are faithful. And Lord, as we come into this season and as we live in a time of conflict in this world, may we be agents of peace. And help us learn over these next few weeks what that means. Thank you, Father, for not dealing with us according to our sins, but according to your grace and mercy. For loving us, although we do not deserve it. And by lifting us up while we were still sinners, by dying on the cross for us, by taking the being the sacrifice to take the penalty for our sins and to satisfy the righteousness that we were incapable of. Be with us as a church as we go through this journey together. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.